Welcome back to Project Phoenix. I'm Michael. And I'm Ariana. Today, we will be discussing the social injustice and economic crises in relationship to housing and the environment. Let's dive right in. This is Hazardous Housing. Logan and Jacqueline on the previous episode gave us an amazing overview of the ways that Colorado industries, specifically ski and outdoor industries, are being impacted negatively by the environment. We may know that Colorado has a very robust and alluring ski industry that brings a lot of vacationers and newcomers into the state. However, is all of Colorado the beautiful vacation city that many dream it to be? Or might it be less of a paradise for some? That's a good question. When people come here, do they know about how some of these neighborhoods hidden behind the beauty of the Colorado slopes are hazardous and dangerous? Let's explore that issue in today's episode. There are some hazards that tend to exist, which can be dangerous to the health of humans and the environment. Like landfills such as the Republic Service Foothill Landfill placed directly next to Layden Rock Community in the Three Creeks Elementary School in Arvada. Or highways are another one. The expansion and creation of highways can cause displacement, like the expansion of the I-70 highway that displaced Elyria Swansea residents. Communities affected by old nuclear weapon production sites, like the Rocky Flats. These are just a few hazardous elements that may impact people and that can be found within Colorado neighborhoods. However, we noticed a trend between these specific neighborhoods that might hint to a larger problem. What might that be? Now, we're not the experts, and we want to tell this story in the best way possible. So we're here with a human geography professor, Abby Hickox. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure, okay. Yeah. I am the Associate Director of the Arts and Sciences Honors Program. I'm also a co-PI Principal Investigator of the Boulder Affordable Housing Research Initiative, um, where I do more of my research. I'm doing the teaching in the Arts and Sciences Honors Program and then more of the research stuff in the affordable housing project. The articles that I've written focus on Boulder, the culture of Boulder, and the way the culture of Boulder through environmentalism tends to be exclusionary, particularly to non-white and or non-wealthy people. And I looked in my uh, dissertation research, I was looking specifically at immigrants. Actually, I was interviewing white people who were teaching English to immigrants and their impressions of how much the environmental culture is prevalent in Boulder, how much they themselves participate in that culture, and then their impressions of how much their English students, the immigrants to the U.S. Um, and who lived in Boulder, participated in that culture also. And they generally thought that the immigrants did not participate at all. And so I sort of analyzed that as qualitative data to show the ways that environmentalism can act as a kind of exclusionary force. You know, that kind of reminds me of home. Uh, I grew up in a place called Palmdale, California, and you would see this separation of, you know, low income and high income by an actual physical thing. And this thing was the railroad track that cut through the west side and east side. And you can definitely see a difference because, you know, the west side was nice and pristine and had all the, you know, the fancy new restaurants and stuff like that. And then you had the east side where it was not kept up you know there's potholes everywhere and weeds and it just was that social difference yeah that reminds me of my own neighborhood that i come from as well i come from a small neighborhood named montbello and it has a very different culture than boulder 
We are majority Hispanic and black demographic living in an underfunded neighborhood. And we just simply don't have as many resources as other communities tend to have. I myself am seen as phenomenal for even still being here in college. A lot of students from where I come from don't really see themselves being here in Boulder or being in Boulder as something attainable or as somewhere where they'll belong. I know that I didn't when I first came. I felt very excluded and like I didn't fit in. This is very interesting because you're speaking to how it manifests itself through environmentalism. It's typically seen as good, especially in a liberal city such as Boulder, but there can be underlying impacts. That might be similar to some of the places you went and visited during your research, like manufactured home communities. You've looked at the intersection of the lack of resources that these communities have and the ways that they are impacted by these environmental problems. Some of these include the flood of 2013 in Boulder. Can you talk about what you found from this? What we found as preliminary findings was that the manufactured home communities were most disproportionately affected because they um, kind of like they they the way they say it in hazards research is even though they maybe had less than like a big old mansion on Mapleton Hill, they lost it all. And this was especially true for people who were who are immigrants to the country and who lost papers. So, you know, if I lose as a homeowner and a citizen of the United States, if I lose my electricity bill, for, you know, the ones that I have kept for the last two years, that's like nobody actually cares. But um, in the case of immigrants, sometimes you have to show documentation to the government, to the city, to show that you have like proof of residency. And so losing those kinds of documents, which are really quite banal and unimportant <laughs> in a lot of contexts, was um, really compounded the losses of losing one's home. That was really detrimental to all of the people affected by the flood. But in terms of human-made hazards, how did those impact people? In terms of like human-made hazards, um, Commerce City and the Illyria Swansea neighborhood in Denver is a really hazardous area. And um, some of my colleagues here at the university have done some research on that in terms of air quality. Um, Shelley Miller, Dr. Shelley Miller in engineering has done research on that, including some participatory research that's really cool. Um, that one's super interesting because as the area gets a lot of attention with like the I-70 redevelopment and they're trying to kind of build a park to link up the south side of I-70 with the Illyria Swansea neighborhood, um, it's going to become increasingly more desirable to all kinds of people to live there, whereas historically it's been an immigrant neighborhood in the earlier days, in the mid-20th century it was, I think, um, like Southern European immigrants, Italian, maybe even like Polish um, and now it's mostly Latinx residents and they're just continually being marginalized and now they're also facing like potential gentrification. But um, so it sort of has this weird like cross, like as more people investigate the air quality in a place like Illyria Swansea, people who are interested in moving there are like, wait, is the air not clean? You know, there's this kind of like privileged gentrifying position that's like, oh my gosh, are there environmental problems in that neighborhood that I would like to displace those people from? You know, it just starts to get a little bit ironic. So as we can see, and based on the research that Abby has done, certain neighborhoods and places can be exclusionary. Like the oil refineries in Commerce City, cement plants, roofing and shingle production companies, and even more. These are being built all around us. 
And again, these are like such sort of odd examples of environmental justice. Elyria Swansea is a pretty clear one, but as the push to develop more and more land comes up, you have people who are just kind of middle income, regular folks moving into suburbs, um, a lot of them not knowing the kinds of hazards that they're being exposed to, particularly in a place like Rocky Flats. A lot of them, people just don't even know the history of that as a, a nuclear weapon production site and the history of the fires where like radioactive material caught on fire and then left the plant, right, and polluted the environment. And, you know, this is radioactive material and so the um, has pretty lasting effects, despite cleanups and everything. People just don't even know the history. Things like highways, landfills, and nuclear plants don't just magically appear. They are built, and they are put in certain places. This may seem like harmless placement, but they're just the most convenient. But why does the most convenient seem to be these more under-resourced places? What historically has allowed this to happen? <laughs> well, Ariana, that is the question. Why do we have this problem? Um, I mean, I think probably this is the reason we need to study our history, right? Is that we need to understand that the, the problems of valuing some places and caring for some places and making them healthy and devaluing other places and making them unhealthy and then dividing people equally along the same lines is a theme that we've had in this country since since before it was a country, right? Um, and I, I mean, I think that's the answer to the question. <laughs> that's, but it just carries that valuation and devaluation. Some people deserve, others don't. That idea carries over, becomes spatialized and it carries over into all kinds of things like immigrant communities near factories, as well as even sort of maybe some people see them as sort of just throwaway suburbs or places where developers make a lot of money by building a lot of buildings like Rocky Flats and then moving on and just leaving the people to face, you know, the sort of nameless, faceless people, even if they're not racialized minority or even impoverished, they're, they're on their own. This is a broad social issue. These environmental hazards are systemically put in places that are under-resourced in certain ways, usually because of historical and societal factors. This says a lot about who is valued and how much we truly value community and the safety of others. But even more than that, it says a lot about how we are willing to treat others. This is why it is so important to learn about our history and how this has been an ongoing problem within Colorado neighborhoods. Abby has also looked into the specific health hazards that this has on people, like increased risk of asthma or cancer. But where does this come into when talking about housing policies or how this affects certain individuals? Yes, that is such a good question. While these are some specific environmental problems, there's also another aspect to this problem in regards to housing. People aren't only affected by outdoor environmental factors, they're also displaced by housing and governmental policies that push certain people out and group people together in these places. This isn't happenstance. There's a very deep and rich history behind it. For example, urban planners used to literally pull out maps when deciding city limits and draw red lines around areas that they deemed not appealing. Who were they appealing to? Well, to be frank, white upper income home buyers. So this practice known as redlining forced those who did not fit into this mold to move out of certain places 
or a practice known as white flight, which would encourage white upper income people to flee a neighborhood and leave it debilitated for the incoming residents. This still has impacts on today's society. And we see this when lower income people continue to be pushed out by rising rent prices and unfair landlords. However, organizations like Bridge to Justice, a nonprofit legal aid company dedicated to providing services to those most in need, use what they have to try and combat this issue. Here is the executive director and staff attorney. Sadly, we couldn't meet you guys in person, but thanks for joining us today over Zoom. All right, well, thanks for reaching out. Uh, my name is Bruce Weiner. I am the executive director and founder of Bridge to Justice. Uh, we were established in 2013, so we're coming up on nine years. Uh, and our mission is to bridge the gap between legal needs and legal access with affordable, high-quality legal services. Uh, from 2013 until about 2018, we focus exclusively on family law matters. So divorce and child custody cases involving low and moderate income Coloradans, primarily in the front range, so Boulder County and surrounding areas. And most recently, uh, we've received grant funding from the city of Boulder, uh, no eviction without representation ballot initiative that was passed in 2020. And from the state of Colorado eviction legal defense fund to provide free eviction legal defense services. And I'll turn things over to Joel so he could talk more about the work that we do and, and maybe answering your specific questions. Um, I apologize in advance. I'm, I'm just single parent today for a hound dog who can be very, very noisy right now. He's decided he has to drink all the water in his bowl uh, right next to me. What are the main causes of eviction in and around Boulder? Uh, a lot of clients have uh, gotten COVID, lost their jobs, <clears throat> or at least lost a lot of income and gotten behind on rent. And, you know, just by way of background, um, and you probably know this, but rents in Boulder are so high that even folks with full-time jobs are really just one car accident away from, uh, from eviction. And that was before COVID, um, and uh, and certainly that was before the fire that took out a thousand or more houses, homes in Boulder County. Um, so so rents are high and going higher, and and salaries, you know, I think are going up, but um, very few people have the ability to withstand loss of income for, you know, for a month or or more and not get behind. The rent assistance program is by, by standards of, of public assistance programs really good and really fast, particularly the Boulder County, the, the program administered by Boulder County, uh, commonly called ERAP. Uh, but um, the state program, not so fast and uh, there are often glitches where clients don't know that they've gotten emails that ended up in their uh, spam folder or landlords have been reluctant or just refused to cooperate. And so sometimes won't send the lease, won't send the ledger. And um, in theory, the uh, clients should be able to get paid directly, but um, 
I know Boulder County is very, very reluctant to do that. Uh, they're really good on some other, in some other ways, uh, but um, really reluctant to, to pay the, the tenant directly. So, um, and, and a lot of times for whatever reason, people don't apply until after they get the demand. Uh, you know, they're maybe in denial, hoping that it's all gonna work out. Um, hopeful that the landlord's gonna give them some grace to, um, you know, to catch up. But, um, you know, some landlords do, uh, some are very uh, patient, but most are not that patient. In most recent times, the cause of eviction was because of COVID. But even before that, we see the average person renting in Boulder was so close to being evicted, as Joel has put it, rent in Boulder is so high, the folks with full-time jobs are just one car accident away from being evicted. That's a scary fact. But how have things changed over time? And what do you two do to well, help I with think, this problem? I think the, um, the law and the, has changed favorably in the last year and a half. And the resources for rent assistance, um, those were never there in the past. You know, I never saw a pool of money that I could help a client connect with in a few weeks that would pay $10,000 or more in rent assistance. Um, you know, prior to this, uh, getting, getting $500 or $1,000 in rent assistance might be possible, but it would it would take a lot of documentation and a lot of people would have to sign off on it. And whoever was cutting the checks would have, you know, an accounting system that verified everything and then wrote a check at the end of the month. And um, until about what, three, four years ago, uh, you had three, three days to pay your rent. And so, uh, now you have 10 days in most circumstances. So that's a big increase. Um, and, um, and those three days in Boulder included weekends and it wasn't supposed to. I fought it um, and I lost, um, which I'm you know, still a little annoyed about because uh, I was right. Weekends weren't supposed to count, but it was really tough to get a county court judge to see things from the perspective of the tenant. I do think some things have changed. Uh, I was shocked really that um, no eviction without representation was even uh, proposed, much less passed. Um, I would, you know, I would get a tenant um, in the legal aid office and, and ironically, Bruce, who was a long-term volunteer there was one of the few attorneys that would even take landlord tenant cases. Uh, so I did them because most people didn't see any, uh, either any merit to helping those tenants or, or any likelihood that they'd be successful. And then to have the community of Boulder pass no eviction without representation, to me, it was just amazing uh, that the community was concerned about families being evicted. Um, and, and I know Boulder residents um, see homeless people and to a large extent, uh, care about them, and and that really is the result of evictions: is is people in shelters, people who um, can't get back up uh, after they lost their jobs and then they lost their homes, and um, and you know, Boulder is is a kinder and gentler community. 
As we have discussed, low-income people have been impacted by this issue for a very, very long time. While more attention has recently been called to it and more help and resources are being provided to these communities, this is still happening. And as we all know, the Marshall fires have recently devastated Louisville and Superior communities and have displaced thousands of people. The thing is, these weren't low-income neighborhood communities, which adds an interesting and complex layer to this problem. How will this recent event impact this ongoing historical problem? In some ways, the destruction of the home is kind of clear, at least. You can't rent that home anymore. Um, you've, you've got to move. Um, it's, uh, of course, um, brutal, uh, a brutal reality for those families and, and, and no funds for the, for the owners uh, of those homes who are renting them. Um, or, or the owner-occupied homes, obviously, just a tragedy uh, for, for all those families. Uh, you know, I saw one uh, Denver Post story that predicted, a realtor predicted rents would triple. I, I can't imagine that, uh, but I, I'm confident rents will go up. The fires like the Marshall Fire are showing us the exacerbation of inequalities there too. And so for housing, you know, we have already had an overfull housing market um, and now it's down a thousand houses, right? In terms of our like near Boulder front range area. Um, so there's gonna be the same demand as there was before, plus these, you know, thousand families who need to be relocated for the next two years or whatever as they rebuild. Um, so that, I mean, that's just the pressure, right? That's like our supply and demand kind of pressure. But in addition, we, uh, through the Boulder Affordable Housing Research Initiative, we have heard from community members in Louisville who are concerned about um, not increasing affordable housing and even leaving the renters housing security and low-income housing security behind in the process of rebuilding. And I think at this point, we can think about like building back better. We see now that higher income or middle-class housing are overly packed communities and are being affected by these environmental crises. In the next episode, Code Red, by Reza and Kevin, we'll discuss the causes of these overcrowding housing developments and the imp impact of the environment. That's all the time we have for now. Wow, I do wish we had a lot more time to discuss this issue, but if you're ever in need of support or resources, there's definitely plenty of them out there. Yeah, you can always contact Bruce and Joel at their nonprofit organization at their website of www.bridge2justice.org. That was www.bridge2justice.org. And once again, thank you to Abby, Bruce, and Joel for joining us today. Thanks for your interest. Thanks for the interview. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.